Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Governments around the world are using location data from millions of mobile phones to help them understand the movements of their citizens. Can this data help blunt the advance of COVID-19? Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist. Also on today's show, will telecommunication networks cope with the extra load of a world working from home? If lots and lots and lots of people are trying to connect to the same cell, calls start dropping, data speeds slow down, tempers start rising, and that cell can temporarily be affected. And I ask Larry Brilliant, the doctor who helped defeat smallpox, how can COVID-19 be beaten? If we create a laissez-faire transmissibility or a Swiss cheese-like transmissibility with holes in it, with people going to beach parties, those holes will lead to increasing transmissibility. Across the world, it's estimated that more than 5 billion people have mobile devices. Now governments are hoping that the location data that these phones produce can help them track whether people are keeping enough distance from each other to curb the spread of the virus. In Israel, data is being harvested from millions of phones to understand the travel patterns of those exposed to the virus. And in Britain, the National Health Service is preparing to launch an app which will alert users who have been in contact with somebody who has the infection. Sebastian Delatay is an entrepreneur and a data expert. He's been asked by the Belgian government to help lead a task force to use data to fight the outbreak. Welcome, Sebastian. Hi, Ken. And Nuria Oliver is the chief data scientist at Datapop Alliance, a charity that does humanitarian big data projects. She's a member of an ethics committee attached to the Belgian initiative. Welcome, Nuria. Hello, Kane. So, Sebastian, let's start with you. How is data being used to understand the spread and slow the rate of COVID-19? In Belgium, we've got access to the data, the telecom data of all the three major carriers. And with this location information, we're helping the government measure the evolution of mobility over time. And we're trying to understand whether the confinement measures are working and whether they need to be reinforced or not. And how are you doing it? How does the data processing work? Your phone systematically generates location events, whether it's through signaling or whether it's actually through your calls or through your text messages. And that's our raw material. We're going to work on that uh, data to anonymize and aggregate it and produce a whole set of different counters and metrics. 
we're going to be looking at your number of trips, how many trips are occurring outside of your zip code, what is the average distance of those trips, how much time are you spending outside of your home zip code. And all of these various metrics are then regrouped across the entire population per zip code, and it's these metrics that are communicated to the government, fully anonymous and fully aggregated. Now, you found some interesting results already. Nuria, can you describe some of those? Some of the results that were reported last week was a significant drop in mobility in Belgium as a consequence of the first set of uh, social and mobility confinement measures that were taken, particularly in the long-range trips. So trips can be classified by the distance, and there was a very significant drop in the amount of trips that were observed through the data. There was also a drop in the amount of time that people were spending outside of their home zip code when compared to a baseline period. Because what we want is to understand the difference between what would be considered normal behavior, which would be the one in the baseline period, versus the behavior observed during the confinement measures. And how does the government plan to use this information to either encourage isolation or to adjust their policies? The Belgian government basically organizes a weekly security council, and they all agree together on what types of measures need to be taken. And last Friday, they literally had on their desk, do we reinforce the confinement, make it stricter? like they do in Italy, for example, or do we maintain the current level of confinement? And it was thanks to these mobility analyses that they they considered that simply maintaining the current uh, confinement levels was sufficient. These mobility analyses guide the decisions that the governments make on how strict the confinement needs to be. Now, other countries are using telecom data and app data to understand the spread of the disease, but they're doing different things. So Israel and South Korea, for example, are using this information as well, but they're actually using it for contact tracing. That's something that Belgium is not doing. Why not? What do you think of those initiatives? Clearly, there's a spectrum of different approaches across different countries, and you could say there's one position, which is effectiveness, where you want to use technology at the most granular level, at the most individual level, with the most targeted possible action. And that's the spectrum on uh, effectiveness. And you can balance that with other dimensions. And in our case, it's privacy and say, okay, well, where do you stand in terms of your model? Uh, China Uh, has clearly been the most extreme on the effective use of technology to combat the disease, but they've done that at the expense of privacy. Belgium is on the other side of the spectrum. We've basically tried to balance the effectiveness of technology as much as possible with a privacy-first model. When you hear about other models, the one pursued in South Korea with apps where people opt in to provide self-reported information, I think that is a model that is going to be adopted through many other European countries. For me, the main difference between what has happened in other regimes and what you find in Europe is that starting with a privacy-conscious approach, showing first results that are transparently communicated to the entire population, and then educating your population on the need to potentially act at a more granular level is a much more democratic process. And then you see a better reception from the public. 
Now, Nuria, you were part of the ethics committee, part of the decision-making process of that. Lots of people are concerned about surveillance by governments and the abuse of people's privacy. So what has the initiative done to address those concerns? What have you specifically designed into the system or decided not to pursue? Yeah, we have a quite interesting discussions every week, actually, about all the progress in this process. And indeed, we provide our feedback as to whether certain analyses might be um, justified or not, might raise some concerns from an ethical perspective. In terms of anonymization or de-identification, I think the, the methodology is very sound. No analysis is done below a certain number of people. So there is also geographic, you know, aggregation and also temporal aggregation usually is aggregated, you know, over hours or over days, depending on the analysis. In addition to that, we are also aware of potential consequences of uh, some of these analyses, depending on the way they are being used or communicated and depending on certain geographic regions or potential vulnerable groups. So these are discussions that we have in the ethical uh, review every week. And we are multiple experts who provide our advice. And I believe that by having this mechanism, we can bring an external viewpoint and an external sort of like critical thinking on this process to minimize potential unintended negative consequences. If I may add just one small point is tech entrepreneurs have this habit of wanting to be you know, like fast and they tend to leave aside a whole set of other questions. Does it make sense from a policy perspective? Does it make sense from an ethics and privacy perspective? And so they tend to minimize or ignore, you know, like, for example, the fact that you know, like some populations might become violent. Um, such behaviors was apparent in a crisis like Ebola, for example. And as much as coronavirus is not as deadly as, as Ebola, human nature stays pretty consistent. And so we, we really focus on those questions before thinking of sending targeted SMS, before deciding to publish rankings of the best performing zip codes and the worst performing zip codes in terms of mobility. And so all of those questions, they're studied before any action is decided. Okay, so what have we learned from this that might outlive the COVID-19 crisis? The main thing that we've learned is that government can be agile in bringing together entrepreneurial energy, large corporates, dedicated public institutions around privacy, ethics committees, and bring them all together to fight a common goal. And that private data can be used for government, for public good, and respect a whole set of different criteria around privacy. What I hope is that from this episode, we will create a toolbox that can be reused for future crises and that it not be used in a systematic manner. It is not about setting up mass surveillance, but that these technological tools may become part of the toolbox for future governments for future crises. Sebastian Delatai, Nuria Oliver, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. Thank you. It was a pleasure. While many governments are relying on their telecoms network to understand their citizens' movements, the infrastructure itself is coming under strain. Internet traffic that used to flow from big office towers connected by fat broadband cables is now streaming through home Wi-Fi routers. And many people who are self-isolating are using the net not just for work, but for their social life too. Can the internet handle the load? 
Leo Morani is a correspondent for The Economist. He joins me now. Hello, Leo. Hello, Ken. Uh, nice to be here in my own house. <laughs> Great. Nice to be here, too, in my own house. So we're talking over the Internet right now, and we have to ask mm -hmm. ourselves, can the broadband network cope? So let me ask you, can it? Broadband networks, yes, absolutely. But it depends on what you mean by that precisely. So fixed line broadband, like the one I am on right now, I'm connected to my Wi-Fi router, which connects to a fiber cable, very robust. These things are made for peak demand. And in the UK, for example, a few weeks ago, there were two video game updates and football games streaming all at the same time. Massive demand. It was fine. The problem is, Ken, outside the West, a lot of countries, most people rely on mobile networks, and those are somewhat less robust than fixed line broadband networks. Okay. And why is that? So the way broadband works is, as I said, I connect to my Wi-Fi router that connects to a cable that then connects to the backbone in the ground. And so if I have a problem there, more likely than not, it's a problem with my Wi-Fi router or because too many people in my household are using data-heavy uh, apps at the same time. The way mobile networks work is slightly different. So my phone connects to the nearest tower mast, which services what's called a cell, hence cellular network. From there, it either jumps to another mast or connects to a wire on the ground, which then goes to the network's core, which then connects to the wider internet. Now, the problem with this is that if lots and lots and lots of people are trying to connect to the same cell, calls start dropping, data speeds slow down, or, you know, on occasion you drop your connection altogether, tempers start rising, and that cell can temporarily be affected. In countries where the majority of internet usage is mobile, when you have lots and lots of people sitting around streaming stuff on their phones, that places huge amounts of extra demand on the networks. Just to give you a sense of what we're talking about, in the UK, the average monthly uh, data consumption on fixed-line networks is about 300 gigabytes uh, per month. On mobile networks, it's six, so about a 20th. How are some of the networks holding up? So we've already seen data consumption rise and speeds slow down. In Spain, data traffic on Telefonica Spain is up 30%. Telecom Italia reports a 10% rise. In India, speeds are down 20% and consumption's up 30%. So networks, you know, networks can see what's happening um, and they're not just standing around waiting for their systems to fall apart. Okay, and so what are some of the networks doing to cope with the demand? They've tried a variety of things. In Spain, a couple of weeks ago, the networks got together in a very unorthodox move and asked consumers to relax a little bit on their data consumption. Other countries have taken different tacks. In the US, the FCC has granted temporarily additional radio spectrum for networks to use, and various other countries are thinking about this as well. In Europe and in some other countries, Regulators have asked the big streaming services like Netflix or YouTube to reduce the quality of their videos a little bit so that there's less demand, there's less load in the systems. Kenya, where Google has long had an interest in launching its so-called Loon project, which will provide 4G signal from high-altitude balloons, has fast-tracked uh, that project and said, fine, go for it, now is the time. 
Um, so lots of countries are trying lots of different things. So I see what the networks are doing to respond to the crisis. How are they imagining the future so that they can get ahead of it? So these are the things they're doing to try and prevent things from falling down. But there are, hopefully, this whole thing doesn't go on too long and these measures will be enough. But the problem is that the longer this goes on, the harder it gets for a couple of reasons. One is that routine maintenance starts to suffer as engineers go off sick or are forced to self-isolate. Generally, the number of people who are able to go out and fix things goes down. There'll be less capacity for emergency maintenance. So that's one set of problems. The other problem is that demands in the network, you know, they will continue rising as this goes on and on. More people are discovering video chatting and downloading apps like Zoom or House Party. And that's in addition to video chatting with each other on WhatsApp or Facebook or FaceTime or a variety of other things. The other thing is that television content is not infinite. And there's many shows that are in constant production, like Daily Soaps. So as broadcasters struggle to provide fresh entertainment as time goes on, more and more people will turn to streaming in ever greater numbers. So all of these things are adding to the mobile network's congestion. So it seems like amid all the problems that we're facing in terms of the COVID response, the one bright area of optimism is that the networks are actually holding up. They are. And let's continue being optimistic. And they probably will. I mean, around the world, politicians, policymakers, regulators and businesses are aware that this is a crucial link now that we're all stuck at home. You know, about about a third of humanity is stuck at home right now. And that's bad enough. You know, it's bad for morale. It's bad for business. It's bad for national economies. But to lose what is for many of us the only connection to the outside world would be far too much to bear. That's right. Leo, thank you very much. Thanks very much, Ken, for having me. You can hear more about the ways that the coronavirus is changing the way we live and work in our sibling podcast, Money Talks, which is released every Tuesday from Economist Radio. And for a way to keep yourself informed and entertained without stretching your broadband connection, subscribe to The Economist. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. And next, after the break, we'll hear from Larry Brilliant, an extraordinary epidemiologist about how to fight COVID-19. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. COVID-19 has surprised many people with its severity. In America, the number of cases is now higher than that experienced by China. But the pandemic has not come as a complete shock to some. A handful of doctors and scientists have long predicted an outbreak of this scale. One of them is Dr. Larry Brilliant. Larry Brilliant is no stranger to deadly outbreaks of disease. Over the course of his career as an epidemiologist, he helped to stamp out smallpox, the only human disease to be successfully eradicated. He has also been at the forefront of using data and artificial intelligence to track infectious diseases, such as with web search queries. 
and he worked as a technical advisor for the 2011 film Contagion. Yes. This, this is Dr. Mears from the Centers for Disease Control. About a global pandemic and the American government's fight to stop it. I really need you to get off that bus. Listen, it's quite possible you come in contact with an infectious disease and that you're highly contagious. Now humanity is facing a real-life global threat. What can be done to contain it? Larry Brilliant, welcome to Babbage. Thank you for having me. How does COVID-19 compare to the other diseases you fought against, like smallpox and polio? Uh, Well, smallpox has an R-naught of three and a half to four and a half, which means that for every one case of smallpox in the wild, there'll be three and a half or four and a half new people who get it. The average flu is about 1.2, 1.3, 1.1. The great influenza in in 1918 probably had an R-naught of a little over two or a little under two. This virus so far we believe to have an R-naught or a transmissible value of between 2.2 and 2.4. So it's a lot faster, a lot worse than ordinary flu, a little less than smallpox, a lot less than measles. And yet we hadn't done anything to prepare for it. Well, that's not exactly correct. I think that a number of things have been done all over the world that have made it possible to have speed bumps in the path of this virus. We have a wonderful... I would say, collection of digital disease surveillance networks. So I think that you'll see that different countries will have better luck responding to the pandemic because they've detected it sooner. And in those countries, you will find that they have better surveillance systems, many of them digital, some of them, like in Cambodia, an analog system, a phone-in system, where all Cambodians report their diseases faster than almost any other place in the world. So there's quite a few things. If you're saying governments have failed in their response, that I would agree with you, and there's a series of reasons for that. Why don't you think governments have taken this seriously enough? So today is the April Fool's Day. I hate to make a comparison between the date and the answer to your question. I would say that governments have been incredibly slow in responding, almost without exception. I think that your government in the UK began on a misguided mission to uh, think that they could allow everybody or a large number of people to become infected in an effort to reach the epidemiologist's holy grail of herd immunity. I think my government fundled um, almost unforgivably in the way they mangled the distribution of test kits, in the way that our leadership pretended that the outbreak could be brought down from five to zero and it would not be a problem after a while. And I think Germany uh, has responded quickly. I think South Korea, after fumbling a little bit in the early days, came down extremely well and uh, has really shown itself a model for what other countries can do. And, of course, China, which I think delayed, or maybe because a regional government delayed for almost a month. But once they understood what it was, they came down with what is called draconian methods. People say the West can't follow them. We don't need to be draconian, but we can follow the methods. What do you think needs to be done to reduce the transmission of COVID-19? Oh, that's a perfect question. That is the key question. You must reduce the density of susceptibles. If 100% of the people were vaccinated, they are not, the transmissibility would go down to zero. It doesn't matter. It's potential transmissibility. If everybody around a virus was quarantined, the transmissibility would go down to zero. That is the entire reason 
behind quarantine, and it is the derivative reason behind social distancing. As we are good at social distancing, the transmissibility goes down. If we create a laissez-faire transmissibility or a Swiss cheese-like transmissibility with holes in it, with people going to beach parties while everybody else is home with a mask and gloves and huddled in the back room, uh, those holes will lead to increasing transmissibility. Do you believe a vaccine will be found? And if so, how quickly? And what are the alternative options in the meantime? There's nothing biologically that I see in the virus that troubles me. I think we will have a vaccine that works in less than a couple of months. Then it'll be the arduous process of making sure that it is effective enough and that it is not harmful. Once we have that vaccine and we've mass vaccinated as many people as we could, there will still be outbreaks. We will then be chasing outbreaks, ping-ponging back and forth between countries. And that mop-up, I hate to use that word when we're talking about human beings, but that follow-on effort will take an additional period of time before we are truly safe. And what are the alternative options in the meantime? Well, there's a couple. One is a medium term, and, and that's an antiviral to treat people, and I'm confident we will find an antiviral. Now comes the question, will we be able to find an antiviral, which is like Tamiflu, that has vaccine-like attributes? In other words, when you use uh, Tamiflu, you use it to treat yourself. But your wonderful Neil Ferguson showed uh, in 2005 that you could actually saturate an entire city's population with Tamiflu if that uh, city had uh, bird flu, and that you could use it because it did have possibilities that it could be used like a vaccine. Now, we've never done this on a large scale, but that is another possibility. Uh, Absent that and absent a vaccine, the only possibility that we have in our toolkit is personal hygiene, washing your hands 20 seconds, and then wearing masks, gloves, making sure you are taking yourself out of the density of susceptibles category, and then adding on social distancing and maintaining that for several incubation periods. And in your time, you've seen pandemics subside. So what does a return to normality look like, life after COVID-19? It's going to be hard. You know, first, during the peak of this pandemic, we will see things that my generation, your generation, had never seen before. When I was in India, and I lived in India for 10 years, I love India, working on the smallpox eradication program. In the year that we began the program, there were 250,000 children who were stricken with disease. At least a third would die, perhaps more. And the crematoriums were unable to handle the load, and so you would find bodies wrapped in cloth that would be stacked like cords of wood. We are not able to look on a scene like that. Uh, We'll go back to a time and a state that we're not ready for emotionally. And when my colleagues and I have talked over the last 30 years, or we've done in the movie Contagion, we've tried to show that it isn't just the biology of the virus that causes such great social disruption. It's the knock-on effects to human beings' lives, their financial well-being, the interfamilial bonds that are tested or made strong. We're not prepared for it. And so the end of that in the first while will be disbelief, bewilderment, and the return to normality will be slow. I add also, of course, that throughout history, pandemics like rivers 
recreate the boundaries of countries. And with the rising tide of nationalism that we have seen in the past few years, you give a, uh, a tyrant or a dictator the power that is needed to conquer a pandemic, the question remains, what will they do with that power once it is not needed for the pandemic? Will they surrender it voluntarily and go back to democracies or not? Larry Brilliant, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.